Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is the chartered independent financial advisor, Lisa Conway-Hughes, aka Miss Lolly. Lisa is the founder of MissLolly.com, a website brimming with financial wisdom and, most intimidating for me, the co-host of the fabulously successful Ladies Finance Club UK podcast. Lisa was a superb guest. I love talking to her. Do check out her podcast and her website at misslolly.com. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Lisa Conway Hughes, aka Miss Lolly, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Lisa, how did you start your career? I started because I'd just come back from traveling and it was the first job that I got offered. It wasn't a very well thought out career plan. It was just something I stumbled across and joined. And I didn't actually think it was going to be my job for life. I just thought it was a job to pay back my traveling debt and then see what happened. But it turns out financial advice is more than I thought it was going to be. It actually turned very, very quickly into something of a passion, really. What was your impression when you first started? I mean, what did you think you were getting yourself into and how Um, has it become a passion? Well, I thought I was getting myself into perhaps something that was very professional. It was going to stretch my mind mentally. And I thought it was going to be really fast paced. And my first impressions when I joined the industry in the early 2000s couldn't have been much different, actually. I think when I joined a bit of a bad egg and it was a very fast paced sales environment, which was not what I wanted. I'd never seen myself as a salesperson before. If I'd have known I would going for a sales role, I wouldn't have joined, I don't think. Always as a graduate, when I was looking for jobs and they always had the OTE, that always put me off. But anyway, I found myself there and very quickly, I realized I was quite good at talking to people about their money. And I don't know whether it was a bit of Northern charm at the time. But I found it quite natural. And as a consequence, I would bring in lots of clients for the company. So at what point did you move away from sales and into more practical financial planning? Well, it wasn't until I'd got all of my exams. So I spent a lot of my 20s getting my exams. But I was also where I didn't just want to stop at diploma. I wanted to become chartered. I wanted to get my fellowship of the Personal Finance Society because it was just really important to me that I was in a professional environment. And then in 2012, I joined an independent firm and I wanted to go to an environment where it felt less about the product and more about the client's life. What's the distinction between an independent firm and a a dependent firm? So an independent firm is we can go out to the market and find anything that we want that we think is right for the client, obviously, as long as it's regulated. You could either be um, a tied firm, which is just you have your own product, your own thing to sell, or you could be multi-tied, which is where you have, you're sort of shopping from a panel of products that you can sell. And I think, well, it's important the way I even just described it, then it was a product you can sell or a panel you can sell, or you go out to the whole of the market and find what's right for the client. Now, Lisa, you are our first guest who also hosts the podcast, I'm a bit intimidated. If the truth <laughs> you, know. uh, you started the uh, She's on the Money podcast. Um, why did you start the podcast, first of all? I started with my friend Molly. So Molly has a background in events in financial services. And she realized that although she worked for some of the biggest banks, and she even worked for the FCA for some time, 
that she didn't actually know about Molly and neither did any of her friends. And so we start to do events and we start to do the podcast. Well, A, for fun, B, to promote the events that we were putting on, but then also just as a way to reach people that perhaps wouldn't ordinarily listen to a podcast about money. Who are the target audience? Is it anyone who is looking to increase their knowledge? Do you have someone in your mind who you're talking to? To myself, really. Like the person that I would be if I hadn't joined the industry. So it's women like me, keen to learn more and don't want to take it too seriously or don't necessarily want to learn it in a classroom environment. We're now called the Ladies Finance Club because it is for women, but we don't exclude men. And so the Ladies Finance podcast targets women. What do you think the problem that you're trying to solve is? And and why do you think there is a problem with knowledge and understanding across mainly women? We know there's a problem rather than I think there's a problem. We know there's a problem because it all stems from the gender pay gap the investment gap, women have less in investments, women have the fifth of a pension of the average man. But I don't think it's necessarily that women have less knowledge than men. I think women have less confidence than men when it comes to money. And I think that comes from a good place, actually. I can tell that by the way I am as an advisor. I don't just want to learn the chapter on pensions. I want to learn every single book that's been written about pensions before I feel happy to talk to a client about it. And I think that's the same possibly with women about money, that they know about investments, but just to dip your toe in the water and see how it feels isn't necessarily how women would react. We want to feel more confident. And Fidelity did some research into that, actually. And they think the reason for that is when women invest money, they see the money as the family's money. Whereas when men invest money, they see it as their own money. So it's much easier to dip your toe in the water and give it a go with your own money than it is necessarily with the family's money. Let's start then on on the gender pay gap. (laughs) What do you think the drivers of the gender pay gap are? And at what point in people's career does the gender pay gap start to really widen? Stats show that it surges around 40. That's when the gap starts to really, really widen. But the gender pay gaps when, again, women prioritising the family as a natural instinct, thinking, I'll go part time, I'll take Fridays off, I'll take Mondays off. My salary isn't worth the money we've got to pay for the nursery fees is another one as well. I think it's subconscious that naturally women take a back seat, which is sad. It's never been that way for me and some of my friends as well. Me and my husband always have this tussle of... (laughs) who's picking up, who's dropping off. We always fight about whose career is more important. Well, not who's more important, but that they're equal, I suppose. Well, that sounds like a very familiar conversation slash argument. But going back to the gender pay gap, clearly it accelerates in late 30s, early 40s. So two questions. One, in the UK, are we ahead or behind the rest of the world in terms of the gender pay gap? And then second question, does childcare costs play a role? So I don't know the answer about us in comparison to the rest of the world, but I imagine it feels like behind Scandi countries where they've really got their childcare nailed, that there isn't such a disparity as there is here. And I hear it so often, it's almost not worth me going back to work because of the childcare. And I think sometimes, well, that might be what you choose to do and what you would want to do. But if you are doing that for financial reasons, I think often... The next part of that conversation is then, but what are the medium to long-term implications of me 
taking a step back or not going for that pay rise or just not putting myself as forward as perhaps I would have done before kids. And then you get later on in life, this sandwich generation of women who are looking after kids and looking after the older generation. So you're being pulled in two directions and then you're going to have a job on top. It's a lot to juggle with. And we've seen that during the coronavirus that women have apparently carried the burden of coronavirus much more than men have. So that's interesting. Can you give examples of how the lockdown and as a result of the coronavirus have done that? Because you would, I mean, there is an argument to say that it has catapulted some companies into the 21st century, probably 20th century for some, in terms of flexibility and flexible working. And presumably that is a good outcome for families. So why then is it a step back in terms of shared responsibility? Well, the two reasons, the jobs that women typically did which were some of the biggest hit industries, but also a lot of women were key workers in the NHS, in care homes. You saw those heartbreaking stories in the news where a woman was being asked to choose, do I see my kids and therefore quit my job or am I not going to see my kid for 10, 12 weeks? And those, I've got goosebumps thinking about the stories where the child just leaps into the mother's arms after not seeing them for two, three months. It was just heartbreaking. So there's that. But then it was about, let's say we are both working in a male-female relationship and the kids are now at home and they're not going to school and you are having to homeschool. Stats show that women did carry that burden more than men. They were doing more work. So that's been the sort of short-term effect. And, and, you know, a lot of the questions I suppose I've been asking on this podcast have been, you know, what are the long-term effects of lockdown and what what are the sort of more cyclical effects? What are the structural effects and what are the cyclical effects? What, in your mind, will be the good outcome, the structural effect from these lockdowns as we all creep back to work? Is the flexibility around working a net positive for women? I hope so, but I heard a really good point, which was that who's going to get the promotion? Is it someone who is in the boss's face 24-7 in the office all the time or the person who's at home juggling kid life balance you can't help but think that it is probably the person who is in the office who is more present that might be more front of mind you hope not you hope Mm. that it would be judged more fairly so although we have more flexibility perhaps people who want to prioritize their career that their career is important to them maybe they will be going back into the office and I think we're seeing quite strong messages from a lot of the investment banks and law firms about how often people will be in the office it's not a case of We've seen over the last 12 months that you've acted like a grown-up. None of us have failed. In fact, some companies have been more profitable. So let's all have an open agenda where you come in to the office when you want to and you're not in the office when you don't need to be. I hope that the flexibility is here to stay. But I think it's also there. a lot of women have left high-profile jobs or demanding jobs because flexibility was never on the table. But now, hopefully the argument of we've never done it before and we couldn't offer it to everyone has gone away. It's an interesting point. And I think the word, and it's a new word to me that springs to mind is, is presenteeism. It's exactly as you said, you know, if you're up in, in your boss's face, you know, you're more likely to leap forward in your career. Now, let's take a step back. How are you working with your clients and particularly the female cohort of clients? What are the sort of easy goals? Well, I think with everybody, it's like... Starting anything new, whether it's a fitness regime or a diet or a change in 
habit that you've got to understand your why and say whether I'm helping reasonably well off people as my day job as a financial advisor or whether it's with the ladies finance club people starting at the beginning of their financial planning journey it's about saying well what is it that you actually want to achieve and what do you need to do every single month to achieve that goal so I often start by breaking it down into short medium and long-term goals and then trying to hone in on well career goals what would be your goal what would be a personal goal that you want to achieve in the next five years what is your long-term personal goals and then property usually plays a big part in it how do you want to potentially climb that property ladder is there a second home dream is there a retiring abroad dream in there and just starting to slowly map out a timeline of somebody's life and goals I think is the first point then you've got to work out well where are you actually because you can earn loads and spend loads and therefore not have lots or you could be quite sensible with your money and some of my most inspirational clients are people who um, just do the right thing often and have accumulated huge amounts of money Can you give an example of the right things regularly for our younger listeners? What are the right things to be doing regularly? And, you know, maybe it's the first paycheck that, um, you know, you don't blow on your first week of getting it. So the right things regularly, it's about paying yourself first. That's something that came up with Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's about saving the day that you get paid, saving, investing, putting money into your pension the day that you get paid. It's about thinking about your retirement planning. So as a real general rule of thumb, if you take your age, divide it by two, that's the percentage of your income that should be going into a pension. So at the moment, the rules are 8% has to go into your pension somehow. So if you're above 16, you need to be doing more than is naturally occurring for you. And usually just a couple of percent when you take into account the tax, It doesn't have that big an impact on your take-home pay, but it can have a ginormous impact on the long-term planning. So I think the right thing to do, save, invest and do your pensions the day that you get paid. Set good goals because it's really easy to go off track. And especially for younger listeners, about usually their obsession is getting on the property ladder. And I think it's an acceptance that that's either going to be very hard for a short period of time, i.e. you've got to save absolutely loads and really cut back, or it's a decision, are you happy with the trade-off where you're going to have to save a reasonable amount for a long period of time? Mm. It's the same amount of pain, I feel, either dragged out or made Mm. shorter and harder, if you to me. So I think you've just got, rather than giving up and thinking I'm never going to be able to do that, it's about having a plan and thinking about alternatives as well. Well, let's stay on the investment point, the bit that I'm particularly interested in. How do you guide your clients through what can be quite a scary world of investment? You know, particularly when they've probably seen what happened after the 2008 crisis, they probably saw what happened last year in equity markets. It's probably quite a scary journey to go through. How do you educate them? So I think that education bit is the right word. So In the good years, clients perhaps don't realise it, that I'm sowing the seeds constantly when they're feeling happy about their finances, that actually when markets go down, that's the time we really, really focus on investing. Markets will go up as well as down. When they go down, this is how we're going to react. So I'm always trying to condition them to not be their own worst enemy when it comes to the falls. And then when those falls happen, so now's 2021, so last year, 2020, 
my job as a financial advisor was to know quickly which clients were going to need the most hand-holding and hold their hand really tightly and back it up with loads of stats. So we had some great presentations of showing the stats going back to the Great Depression to show how long do these letdowns last and how long do the booms last? How quickly can you reasonably expect to recover? Last year felt like Armageddon last March, didn't it? People thought the argument was always, well, we've never been through this before. But people felt the same in the 70s. They felt the same about interest rates being really, really high. They felt the same about the Great Depression. It always feels like it's new, but the reality is markets will go up, they will go down, and you've got to hold tight when they're down. And if you're brave, pay them more. (laughs) It's an interesting sort of hand-holding exercise. And I just want to return to the gender pay gap and unequal pay. Do you have a view on whether or not it's getting worse or better? There's no question that the gap in the last 10 years between income earners and capital owners has increased vastly. So how has that played into the gender pay gap? When I look at the stats, one stat seems to contradict another stat, even if it comes from a really good place. And so... If I sort of cite the stats, the Mm -hmm. pay gap is getting slightly better, apparently. Corona might have knocked that slightly off course. But there is also this bonus gap. So women or people in jobs lucky enough to be receiving annual bonuses, Mm -hmm. that's still heavily skewed to men. And I did see something from the Office of National Statistics that was showing that the gender bonus gap actually has been increasing for the last two years. So why do you think that is? People often say it's because women don't know how to ask for it. They feel that maybe we're too polite. Mm. I think it's really, really important that we teach the next generation, boys and girls, to be confident about asking for money and for money not to be this dirty topic. Scarily, there is even a gender pocket money gap. Do you know that? Is that right? It really Going is. Going back to where, how old? So right now, there's a gender pocket money gap, and it's quite significant. Again, we can look it up, but in the early teens, um, it's at its highest. So and it's fairly well entrenched. What do you think that we, society, us working in financial services, need to do to address it? Well, we need to learn how to negotiate a pay rise. We need to learn how being paid your worth is not something cheeky. Employers need to learn to pay people what they're worth as well and not hold people back. I remember when I changed jobs, I complained as I was having my exit interview, I complained that my requests for more money hadn't been met and that my new job was giving me significantly more. And they offered me the same as the new job to stay. And I just felt that was just a real symbol of too little, too late. If I was worth that to you, I should have been paid it when I asked the first time, the second time, and definitely by the third time. And to offer it me as a comeback, it was almost like, I know you're just thinking about the recruitment fees you're going to have to pay to replace me, rather than giving it to me as a you've deserved it. It's definitely an important topic because at the Ladies Finance Club, we often do the how to negotiate a pay rise session. And they're one of our most popular sessions where we get an expert in or a recruiter in to just talk about how to negotiate pay rise. And it's not just always about the pay rise itself. It's about the other things that you could be getting. It's Maybe it's flexibility for the same price. Maybe it's more pension. Maybe it's other benefits that are as equally important to you. 
So you get special speakers in. Yeah, uh, so we get experts in when, when they're needed, really. So like we, our most recent events on how to build a side hustle. So if you haven't got enough money and what can you be doing on the side and what tax should you be thinking about if, say, you're renting out a room or you're doing Airbnb or you've got a little Etsy business on the side. We've also had career coaches talk about how to transition to being self-employed. On the investment side, we've had experts in on ethical investing and what that actually means so that people don't just hear my point of view mm. all the time, but also because I can't be the expert of anything just because it's got a pound sign in front of it. Well, that's right. And well, we'd definitely we'd recommend our listeners to check out the website and we'll put it in the show notes. And I think Thank that's really, you. really important. But what advice would you give then to younger listeners who are looking to get a career in finance and perhaps it's financial planning it could be investment management what skills do you think they need to equip themselves with to pursue a career in finance i think it's about the people skills if you can talk to people well people are going to talk back to you and the more people are going to talk back to you the more you're going to find out about them the more you're going to really understand them well and the more you understand them the better the financial plan is going to be suited to them For example, yesterday I had a couple who want to invest a a huge amount of inheritance. And when we're looking at their risk rating, they were saying they were a three or a four. But I know how they reacted last year. I know that they really did freak out as a couple. And I know that they don't need money. They've got more money than they ever could need. So rather than just fill in that form and come out as a three and four, and then that's how we invest, my job was to think, well, if I were them, knowing what I know and what I know about them, what do I think they really want? So it it then led to a whole hour's extra conversation about risk, reward, need for extra risk, sleepless nights. My natural reaction was, the conclusion was that I was right, that they did need to be an extra layer Mm -hmm. of lower risk in their financial planning that they perhaps hadn't considered. So I think long way short of saying you need to be good at talking to people. And I think also this Our industry is a real bloke's industry, stereotypically, especially the world of financial advisors. And I was constantly told, a podcast, that won't work. A money blog called Miss Lolly, that really won't work. (laughs) Like, don't do it. A pink book about money lessons, that won't work. Everything I've felt that I thought would be successful has always been met with scepticism or that's not how we've done it before. And I think that's a good thing because financial advice There's so much room for improvement and there's so much that needs to change if we're going to try to capture this next generation. And and if you're thinking it from a business capacity as well, the billions, I can't remember the exact number, but the billions of pounds that are going to cross the generations Mm. in the next 10 to 15 years is huge. Mm. And so if you are stuck in the old days, you're great at advising the older generations, but you don't know how to generate the younger people, you don't have the technology that excites them, you can't, they don't feel you're keeping up with the times, they're going to seek out a different type of financial advice. And I see that all the time, people leaving the family financial advisor and coming for Miss Lolly, because they identify with Miss Lolly and not their family advisor. From a um, product perspective, do you think our offering is set up? Do we have enough products to offer to the next generation to capture their imagination? Or have we gone too far down the product salesman route and you know we shouldn't be selling products in the first place? What we should be doing is partnering with our 
clients and trying to find out what the best outcomes are for them. Well, definitely always client-centric and what's right for them. But if I didn't know anything about money and I was a 40-year-old woman in a decent job, financial advice would be like a foreign language to me still. I feel I really had to go out of my way to learn about it before I felt really comfortable with it. And if I'm not from a background where my mum and dad invested regularly, investing would still feel like a a really high-risk thing, akin to gambling, which obviously it's not. I think there's loads of room for improvement. Mainly it's about getting rid of the jargon. It's about simplification. It starts with what do you want to achieve? Then this is the thing that will achieve what you want to achieve. I think it's coming from a different angle rather than we've got these products called super high growth or Mm. extra cautious. I just find sometimes the language can be a bit patronizing and salesy still. And I would love to design some really simple investments with literature that people could understand and pensions with literature Mm. that people could understand rather than just you think of a pension brochure and just want to shove it in the bin. I totally agree with that. I mean, do you think like reflecting on your own career, do you think perhaps there are too many salesmen in our industry and not enough partners? I can tell that our industry is trying to make really big steps into becoming financial planners rather than financial sales people. But when you look at the average age of our industry, it's got to be pushing 60 now. And the gates aren't fully opened, it feels, to the next generation. They're not choosing us as a, as a sexy industry to join. I really feel there's lots of change and positive change that can be had. Absolutely right. And where do you see the role of, say, robo-advisors in the future of finance and and maybe capturing that next generation? Some robo-advisors are a really, really good example of what happens when you just keep it really simple. But what most people don't realise is robo-advisors, even though they look and feel can be cheap and cheerful, that they're not actually cheap and cheerful. And some of them don't actually perform as well as perhaps you would if you went to a a financial advisor. So I think that could all be improved. And, well, the sky's the limit for the Ladies Finance Club. I would love to have a robo-advisor that was the first stepping stone to showing women or anybody how to invest and doing it fairly, not charging too much. What I would do with my money if it was me, put it that way. Well, I'd love there to be a Ladies Finance Club pension, Ladies Finance Club pension fund. I'd love it. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it may be something on the horizon. Lisa Conway-Hughes, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Miss Lolly, a.k.a. Lisa Conway-Hughes. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, well, why not like it and let your friends or indeed colleagues know? The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.